I asked you to turn to John and I wasn't doing it myself, so give me just a moment here. Got a little distracted in my excitement over the passage we're memorizing. John chapter 1. Last week we were in John chapter 1 verse 14, speaking of the reality of Jesus Christ being 100% man and 100% God. Can anyone remember that? Well, some of you weren't here, but can anyone remember the, the fancy term that I used to describe Jesus Christ being 100% man and 100% God? Two personalities, both distinct, both present, both unmixed. It's a theological term. Brother Gershmo. Hypostatic union. Very good. The hypostatic union coming from that Greek word whereby uh, the, the Greek word meaning structure, foundation. So the structure of the union. He had two foundations, two structures, two very separate entities and one person, two personalities. 100% man, 100% God. This week we continue. This is our last week of introduction material, as it were. Beginning in John 1.19, we're going to be stepping into actual historical account. But up through verse 18, we are still in introductory material, whereby the gospel writer, who is John the disciple, not John the Baptist, is introducing the work and the person and the purpose of Jesus Christ, the one who was introduced in John 1.1 as the Word of God, the Logos. Look with me, if you would, in John 1, and we will read verses 15 through 18. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. John the Baptist is an extremely unique figure in biblical literature. He was a man born of the priest Zecharias and his wife Elizabeth. He was six months older than Jesus of Nazareth and distantly related to him through his mother and Jesus' mother Mary who were in fact cousins according to Luke 136. This man, John, who we now know as John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, as many would like to designate him, was chosen from conception as the forerunner to the Messiah. And with this commission came unique expectations. John, as he was pictured as he entered into the New Testament, as he entered into this world wherein the New Testament would be written, came in the fashion of the Old Testament prophet. Matthew 3, verse 4, and Mark 1, 6 describe John as having the raiment of camel's hair and having a leather, leathern, as the scriptures say it, girdle around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Both of these attributes, what he wore and what he ate, were designations of extreme asceticism, whereby you are rejecting the earthly luxuries of this world, you are rejecting the, the goods, the material goods of this world, for a greater purpose. You reject earthly pleasures, even the comforts of good clothes, even the comforts of good food, in order to wholly devote oneself to something. In the terms of John's message, we see that he was wholly devoted to that which God had commissioned him to do, to the message which God had commissioned him to proclaim, that being repent, that being the kingdom of heaven 
is coming, that being the Messiah is coming. And John was indeed commissioned by God. Not only did the angel Gabriel announce his birth, as we recall from the account in Luke, but in John 1.33 we'll see that some messenger from God, perhaps Gabriel again, perhaps uh, another form of angel or even, well at this point it couldn't be the pre-incarnate Christ, could it? So some angel, some angelic being appeared to John, came to him and told him the very message he would preach and told him even the one whom he would know to be the Messiah by the Holy Spirit coming down and resting, abiding upon him. What's interesting, however, as we look into the book of John is that a great deal of the origin of John, of his backstory, of his purpose are missing from this particular gospel. In fact, it's nearly non-existent. John just enters into the picture and he enters into the picture without really being introduced. We know nothing about where he came from. We know very little about what he came to do until he testifies of himself as to his purpose. And the important question to ask as we consider that is why? When we think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we recognize that each one has a different purpose. We've talked about this before. And as we have introduced the book of John, we have mentioned particularly that the purpose of the book of John is to introduce the reader to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in faithfulness to the purpose of the gospel, the gospel writer John makes no attempt to take any focus away from Jesus Christ. But keeps his focus, excuse me, yes, but keeps his focus on Christ, diverts no focus to John, even so much so that he is unwilling to give John's backstory. John's backstory doesn't matter. The only part that matters to this gospel is the part where John is pointing us to the Messiah, is the part where John is pointing us to Jesus Christ. And this is very significant. And that's going to be the theme of these verses as we look at them this evening. See, John's ministry was that of a herald of Messiah's coming. This was meant, however, not simply to announce Christ, but also to reveal a dramatic change in the way in which God was about to work in the world. We are witnessing in the beginning of John the announcement of a change from living under the law to living under grace. From living in a world that anticipated the Messiah to living in a world that realizes the Messiah. John's ministry was not to be the light. John's ministry was to point men to the light. John came as a complete representative of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament in order to introduce Jesus Christ who came as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and to usher in what we would call the New Testament, the New Covenant, to usher in the age of the church. Do you see the parallel? Do you see the parallel between the Old Testament law, which, as we look back into the law in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, points to the church, points to the age of grace, and then the age of grace coming, and... Not abolishing the law, 
but building on top of the law, but fulfilling the law, but showing how the law can be fulfilled in one commandment, which is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And as the law pointed towards this age of grace, so too we see John the Baptist who encapsulates all that the law is. He's coming not just preaching the law, but he's coming in the manner of those that proclaim the law. In the spirit and power of Elijah, with the camel's hair and the leather girdle, and eating locusts and wild honey, the extreme asceticism, the giving of everything earthly in order to fulfill this heavenly purpose. And as John comes, he's coming not in opposition to Christ. He's not diminished by Christ, but rather he's coming and he's heralding Christ. He's pointing everyone to Christ. He's saying, don't look at me, look at Christ. Don't look at me, look at the Messiah. And then as he slowly fades into the background and Jesus Christ arises to that that level of preeminence that he deserves, Jesus Christ looks back on his disciples as we'll see in a few chapters and says, there was no man greater on earth than John the Baptist. There was no man greater. Jesus came not to supplant John, message. Jesus came to fulfill God's, John's message. The law was in place. Grace came not to supplant the law, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill. That's the parallel. And that is what these verses are trying their best to proclaim to us this evening as it paints this picture between John and Christ and the law and grace and truth. So that's what we're going to see this evening. I've kind of summarized the message for you because I'm really excited about it. Let's look in John 1, verses 15 through 18. We've already read them at this very real parallel drawn between the figure of John and that of Jesus as representatives of the law and, and the grace that is soon to be realized in the age of grace. Our first point this evening, the grace that you and I have received was witnessed in the law. As I walk through this outline, we're going to walk through it from a law and grace perspective because that's what applies to us today. But we're going to see it as parallel between John and Jesus. So the grace that you have received was witnessed in the law. Verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. As we arrive today in John 1.15, we are still in introduction material, as I have said Yet the Gospel writer has already oriented us to the part of the work of John the Baptizer. There's still much that we do not know, however. We do not know much of what God has called him to do. We only know that he is a herald to Jesus Christ at this point. We also recognize that up to this point in the book, there has been no reference to time. There's been no reference to any sort of linear aspect. It is John, the gospel writer, jumping from thing to thing, introducing Jesus Christ, introducing him as the word, introducing him as creator, introducing what he came to do, introducing what he came to accomplish, introducing the reality that he came in flesh, introducing the other theme that we've already mentioned, the reality that though Jesus Christ came, though he manifested this light to the world, yet man will 
reject him by and large. And it's not because man did not know that he is God, it's because man refuses to accept him as God. And so all of these parallel themes have been drawn already. And we've got all of these themes shooting out, and we're going to see these themes fleshed out in every single narrative that we'll see. This book is so well structured, it's so incredibly organized, and it's extremely focused. And that's what we're going to see as we continue in the book. So let's break apart John's declaration in John 1.15 as we seek to understand this parallel. It begins by saying, John bear witness of him. This verb here used to, and translated bear witness is found 79 times in the New Testament. It literally means to go on record or to affirm something that one knows to be true. So when John bore witness of this. This is something he says, I am going on record as saying that this man, Jesus Christ, is the one who is preferred before me. And his testimony was that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that he's been telling everyone about, is the one that he's been trying to prepare the hearts of men for. Jesus, we know in time, in linear time, came after John the Baptist. He was born... Six months after John, we understand from the scriptures. We also know that his ministry has not yet started yet, and John has been baptizing for some unspecified amount of time. And so John's ministry began before Jesus Christ. John's life began before Jesus Christ. And yet, in priority, John declares Jesus to be far superior. And the reason John gives for this is mentioned, he that cometh after me is preferred before me. Why? For he was before me. Because though John was born before Jesus, though John's ministry began before Jesus, Jesus was. Jesus is. Jesus is to come. To put it in the words of Jesus Christ himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. Jesus Christ always was and he always will be. We learn that from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John was a man. Jesus is God in flesh. So John's message was one of validation. And it is meant to be the first in a long line of indicators that this age of the law, that this dispensation was about to pass away and it was about to give way to something far superior. Something different, dramatically different and superior in every way. For some time prior to Jesus Christ's arrival, John had been baptizing. And it had been recognized very quickly as we'll see from the further testimony as we continue in the book of John that the people of Israel very quickly recognized that John the Baptist was something special. They quickly recognized him to be a prophet and they recognized that he came in the very same manner of the Old Testament prophets that they had read about. Now, we recall from Luke that there had been no open vision since the time that Malachi ceased his vision. Nearly 400 years, there had been no word from God. Nearly 400 years, there had been no message at all. And then the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, says there's this young man coming 
His name will be John. And John literally broke the silence of prophecy of 400 years as he stood up and he declared repentance and preparation for the Messiah. But as an Old Testament prophet, his entire purpose, just like any other Old Testament prophet, was to prepare the hearts of God's people and to point the way to the up-and-coming Messiah. The Messiah's message would be very much like John's, yet it would fulfill everything that John came preaching. So once again, I ask you, do you see the parallel? John was an Old Testament prophet. John came entirely devoted to every precept of the Old Testament. John's message was a baptism unto repentance whereby the people of Israel would realign themselves with the weightier matters of the law. The matters of the law that are preached in Hosea 6. The matters of the law that are preached in Micah 6. The matters of the law that's preached in Isaiah 1. That's preached throughout the book of Jeremiah. That's preached all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Justice, mercy, humility, and faith. All preparation for the Messiah. What we see then is that the entire Old Testament system was designed to point the people to the fulfillment in the Messiah. The entire Old Testament system was designed to prepare the hearts of the people for redemption, to show them their need, and to prepare their hearts for his coming. If that sounds familiar, you've probably read it before. Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law was the great schoolmaster. The grace that you have received was witnessed in the law. The grace that you have received was witnessed in the law. Second point, as we look at verses 16 and 17, the grace that you have received fulfilled the law. The grace that you have received fulfilled the law. Verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John's testimony was found exclusively in verse, 16, excuse me, in verse 15. Verses 16, 17, and 18 is a commentary by the gospel writer on that which John the Baptist declared in verse 15. Verse 16 says that of his fullness have we all received. The gospel writer is attempting here to put together these pieces, connecting the dots between the law and grace as reflected in this relationship between John the baptizer and Jesus. So in verse 16, of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Whereas the law was a shadow of the grace of God to man, a picture of that which was to come, Jesus Christ came and brought the fullness of God to man. He brought the very declaration of God's person and nature, as we'll see in verse 18, to man. Of His fullness have we all received. The law was preparation in the heart of man to receive the message of God, but grace is the message of God. John came to prepare the way for the message. Jesus Christ was the message. That's the parallel. 
Thus we read and understand in Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh. But after the spirit. John came baptizing with water. But as we'll see in his message in a few verses. He says I come baptizing with water. But the one who's coming after me. Is coming not to baptize with water. Scriptures would say in other places. That he came to baptize with the Holy Ghost. See that's what Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 were saying. The law could not do it. Just like John the baptizer came. And he could announce the Messiah. He could prepare people for the Messiah. But he had no power. His baptism had no power to wash away sin. His baptism was a baptism unto repentance. The one that would wash away sin was the one whom he was pointing to. And so as the Old Testament son and daughter and father and mother would read from the Torah as they had the words of God written around their household as Deuteronomy commanded the fathers to make sure that it was on their doorposts and to make sure that it was in front of their eyes and in their ears. And as they read the law and as they heard the law, the whole point of the law, the law was screaming, look to Christ. He's coming. Prepare. Get yourself ready. He's coming. He's going to come. And He's got a message for you. And if you obey me and if you follow me with your heart, you'll be ready. And we know that Israel lost sight of that. Just as many will lose sight of John's message, as we'll see in the weeks to come. This reality, the grace that we have, the grace that we have received is the fullness that's spoken of in verse 16. And of His fullness, the very pinnacle of all that Jesus Christ came to do, we who are saved by grace have received. The end of this verse has a curious statement. This statement is one which has caused division with expositors for centuries. I can confidently tell you this evening that I am not going to clear up all the smoke for you of this, these three words, these four words this evening. But I can give you an idea of what people are saying and I can certainly give you my opinion based upon what I understand this passage to mean as to what it means. You see at the very end of verse 16, and grace for grace. Let me read the whole verse together. And of his fullness have we all received, excuse me, have all we received, and grace for grace. You will find, if you do any reading on this subject, that there are many opinions. It could mean, and certainly it's valid, that Christ's Fullness provides the believer grace upon grace. A constant flow of greater grace for our lives and needs. He giveth more grace. This grace upon grace. Many expositors believe that's what it means. I'm fine with that. And grace for grace. Grace for grace for grace. And a constant building of grace as we need His grace. He supplies His grace. I think the concept is valid. But I think in the context... It wouldn't be the valid interpretation. Others think it means that Christ's fullness has given us grace on account of His grace. We have received grace for grace. 
On account of God's grace, we've received grace. Because of his fullness of grace, we can receive grace as well. I believe that's also an accurate concept. That the fullness of the grace that was given by God to Christ is that which we receive. But again, I don't see it in the context, though I believe that is very true biblically. My belief is that this phrase means that God has replaced grace with grace. Verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, as I understand them, as we are looking at them, are dealing with the Old Testament economy making way for the New Testament economy. The Old Testament prophet making way for the final fulfillment of the law. And so I believe when the gospel writer here says, and grace for grace, he is describing the grace that was found in the law being supplanted by the grace that is found in Christ. John's ministry represented the very purest of the law's system. And while we know from Scripture that the law worketh unto condemnation, yet we find, especially as we read the Psalms, that there was grace to be found in the law, was there not? We've been studying Psalm 119 for how long now on Tuesday night? And as we read Psalm 119, this is not a psalm that deals by and large with the condemnation of the law upon man's heart. Though as we look in Galatians, we understand that the law was our schoolmaster, that the law was there to reveal the sin in us and to show us how incapable we are of meeting God's righteous standard. And yet as we read Psalm 119, even this past week as we were in Mame, those eight verses, verses 97 to 104, Verse 97 says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's an expression of a man who found in the law great grace. Who found in the law an expression of grace. An expression of God's goodness upon mankind. Because as we recall those eight verses as they flesh out, we remember that those eight verses were to express the reality of what keeping the law has done for the psalmist. Of what God has done for the psalmist through keeping the law and how the psalmist has gone about to keep the law in order that he might receive the blessings of God upon him. And so there is grace to be found in the law. There is grace to be found in the bulk of our Bibles as we flip through the Old Testament but it's a grace that is only as potent as its reflection upon the grace that was to come. And so, we have received of His fullness grace for grace. I believe that that is what that passage means as we look at it in context. Verse 17 says this, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Of course, that is a special verse to my wife and I, as our little daughters named Caris and Aletheia, grace and truth. This is the verse that we pulled their names from. If you were to read this in the Greek, it would literally say, Caris and Aletheia came by Jesus Christ. Those are the two words. These two aspects, grace and truth, the fullness of them, were found in Jesus Christ. 
the gospel writer is attempting to describe that the law came by Moses. Moses is a very special man as well in the history of our scriptures. He was a servant of God. Furthermore, he was a friend of God. But for all the grace that came in the law, for all of the letter of the law that reflected the character of God, Jesus Christ is the one that brought grace and truth. Grace and truth did not come through Moses. It came through the Logos, through the Word, through the spoken Word of God to man through Jesus Christ. My feeble words this evening are attempting to paint a picture for you which I feel nearly impossible to paint. And this is why God placed the record of John the Baptist into the Scriptures. Through the relationship between John and Jesus, even though the feeble words of your pastor have trouble expounding upon the realities of God's Word, we can understand through these two visible manifestations in history what transpired when Christ came to fulfill the law. As I've mentioned already, over the next many weeks, we will see John do everything in his power to divert the hearts and the attention of man from himself to Jesus Christ. He's going to say, don't worry about me. Don't worry about what I am. Don't focus on me. Look to him. Look to him. Look to him. John is an object lesson. He is a type. He is a picture. He's really the anti-type, is he not, of the law, which was a type. He's the fulfillment of that which is expressed in the law in order that we might understand what the law was meant to do. He will not stand in Jesus' way under any circumstances. He will do his best to point his own disciples to Jesus' ministry. He will say, those of you that have been following me, stop following me and follow Christ. Turn to him. He's the one. Through the synoptic gospels, we see that John, in fact, baptized Jesus. An act that Jesus said must be done, quote, to fulfill all righteousness. Why would Jesus Christ need to be baptized by John? Because Jesus needed everyone to see that he was not coming in opposition to John. He was coming in fulfillment of John. And the reason why Jesus Christ needed everyone to see that is because in the years to come and through the centuries and through the millennia all the way to this day where you walk down to a church down the street and you hear them say the law is dead and Jesus Christ is about love we recognize that they have missed the picture of John. That they have failed to see that Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law he came to fulfill the law. We will see that the law did not come in contradiction to Jesus Christ, but the law came to point everyone to Christ. That's why John is so important. That's why John is so unique. Because we need to see that Christ came not in opposition to anything that was preached in the law, but as the heightened reality of that which the law foreshadowed. He's the fullness of the law. Bringing grace for grace. The grace that you have received, first point, was witnessed in the law, verse 15. 
then we see that the grace which we have received fulfilled the law. Verses 17, excuse me, 16 and 17. Finally, in verse 18, look with me at our third point. The grace that you and I have received flows from the complete revelation of God to man. The grace that you and I have received flows from the complete revelation of God to man. Verse 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The writer asserts that no man hath seen God at any time. What a statement. Let me read you a few verses from the Old Testament so that we can reconcile the statement with what we know from Scripture. Exodus 33.20 And He said, Thou canst not see My face, for there shall no man see me and live. God speaking to Moses. Matthew 11:27, Jesus Christ said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. 1 Timothy 6:16, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Speaking of God. 1 John 4.12 No man hath seen God at any time. Yet he goes on to say, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. No man hath seen God at any time. The assertion here in John 1.18, found in many places in Scripture, that no man can see the face of God and live yet. As we read scripture, we find a strange dilemma that arises as believers. When we read in Genesis 5.22 that Enoch walked with God and was not, for the Lord took him. When we read in Genesis 32.30 that Jacob, after having wrestled with the angel of the Lord, said that he called the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Hmm. No man hath seen God at any time, yet Jacob declared he has seen God face to face. And his life was preserved. Exodus 33.11 states, which consequently was nine verses before the point where God says, you may not see my face because no man who sees me will live. In Exodus 33:11, scriptures say the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. So now we need to rec- reconcile in the span of 10 verses how Moses could speak to the Lord face to face and yet the Lord appeared to Moses and say, you may not see my face or else you will not live. We could run down a pretty long list of Old Testament figures and find that many of these men were spoken to directly by God by their own testimony or stated that they had seen God face to face. And of course, the question we must ask then, does this mean that there are contradictions in our Bible? Is this enough to collapse our entire view and understanding of biblical inerrancy and preservation? Well, the answer is no. You obviously know the answer is no. Most of you can probably explain to me how these understandings are reconciled as we have talked about them before. 
We know that the majority of times we observe this angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we are dealing with God himself. Abraham, as he sees the angel of the Lord and sits down with him and speaks to him in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, as he's pleading for the life of Lot in Sodom, says, I have taken it upon myself to speak to God. He was speaking to God. Jacob did say after he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, I have wrestled with God, I have come face to face with him, and I have not died. Joshua called the angel of the Lord God and bowed down before him in worship. But since we recognize from Scripture that no man has ever seen the Father, we know very clearly that the angel of the Lord is not God the Father. But when we think about the reality of the Godhead and when we think about what we have already learned in John 1, 1-14, we understand that God the Father, and we would even expect that God the Father would designate a messenger, and if He were to designate one to speak for Him, He would designate His Word, His Logos, the Word of God's man. The word that was made flesh. From Genesis 1-3, God has spoken, yet we have already learned that He expresses Himself, that the expression of who God is, is manifested in the divine second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Word of God incarnate. And so, when a man saw God in the Old Testament, when he is said to have seen God face to face, when we see a manifestation of God like we sang about this evening, the rock that is our God, the burning bush that manifested the glory of God to the degree that Moses had to take the shoes from off his feet for the place where he stood on was holy ground. What we understand is that that was the divine second person of the Trinity, the mouthpiece of God, the Word of God incarnate, pre-incarnate in the Old Testament, incarnate in the New Testament, the manifestation and expression of God to man, Jesus. So the Word of God took on flesh. We learned last week, 100% man and 100% God, to bring to man the express image of God, as Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us. When Jesus came to earth, God was fully revealed to men. Every degree to which a mortal man, to which our minds is capable of knowing and understanding the eternal God, is expressed and compounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the revelation of God through the law, that picture of God that could be seen through the Ten Commandments, that picture of God, the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and even the mercy and goodness and love of God that was reflected in the Old Testament law makes way for the declaration of God Himself through Jesus Christ. But it gets better. Verse 16 states, Of His fullness have we all received. And grace for grace. First John 4.12, which we read just a minute ago, stated that if we love one another... God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. I recall you to verse 18, the very end, that it says, The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. We did that word study maybe a month or a month and a half ago, and reality 
of the Word reminds us that it is not God declaring the Son, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, the Son has declared the Father. That's what the verse is trying to say, that Jesus Christ is the declaration, the explanation, the entirety of the declaration of God to man. Therefore, if you've seen Jesus Christ, you've seen God, because all that God is, is declared in Jesus Christ. And what's so exciting about that is in 1 John 4, 2, it says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Just as the Old Testament law had been fulfilled and enhanced through Jesus Christ and grace, so too you and I have the opportunity to manifest the person of God as we live out the character of God in our lives. As we conform our hearts through the help of the Holy Spirit, as we live out the fruits of the Spirit that we quoted not too long ago, as those are manifest in our lives and as people see them, and as Jesus Christ is lived out in our lives, we become a living declaration of the person of God to the world around us. Is that exciting? That's exciting. That when you interact with your unsaved coworker and he doesn't even want to hear about that God that you serve. As you interact with those neighbors in your neighborhood and they don't want you to even mention the name of God. As you go to the store and you are interacting with people in the store and the cashiers and they don't want anything to do with God. As you knock on doors on a Thursday night and you smile as people say, sorry, just plain not interested in what you have to tell me. As you go through your life if you are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit, which is indicative of what Jesus Christ was, who is the express image and declaration of all that God is, you become a declaration of God to man. And as you stand before the throne of God, and God says, well done, and those people whom you've interacted with throughout your life stand before the throne of God and say, God, if only I had known God can point to you, his good and faithful servant, and say, you did know. You saw me in him. That's our privilege. And that is where all of the theology that we've been building in the last few weeks, all that heavy eyelid stuff that we've been trying to trudge through a little bit, finds its practical application. Way back, when we were in the book of Titus, way back, that was last year, 2011. In chapter 2, we learned about the opportunity and the expectation laid upon us to live lives of sound doctrine. Whereby we manifest sound doctrine through our lives. We express that sound doctrine with simply another name for scripture. That we take the word of God and we reflect it in our lives. And John tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnate, the Word made flesh, the complete expression of God to man. The moment you were saved in the Holy Spirit and dwelled you, you became capable of reflecting the person of God who no man has ever seen in the eyes of the world. And as we close, let me 
just state that this is why Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That we should show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray.